Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We release this episode right in the middle of summer when many of us take time off and enjoy a book at the beach. A beach read, it's often called. But many of us don't read for pleasure, and we don't read novels. Former President Trump, for instance, may have been the first president who didn't read much at all during his time in the White House. Why does this matter? The benefits of books, why reading is vital to our democracy— with Dante scholar and literature professor, Joe Lutze. Think of the first lines of the Divine Comedy. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura. In the middle of life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood. All of us, at one point in our lives, will end up in the dark wood. We will all have our crisis moment, and it's not what lands you in the dark wood that defines you, but what you do to get out of it. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, we use one medium to recommend that we spend more time with another. Podcasts are one way to engage deeply with ideas. We also read books to do this as well, especially fiction, when we often find ourselves right alongside people not like us in different places and times. Our guest, Joseph Lutzi, is a writer, lecturer, and professor of comparative literature at Bard College. I recorded this interview while Jim was away, and we'll discuss it later in the show. This year, I studied with Joe Lutzi during three months of seminars reading the books of Dante's Divine Comedy. Why dive deep into the ideas of a man who died 700 years ago? What's the point? we re-release an interview I did with Professor Lutzi in 2018, and we start with some disturbing findings. Americans are reading less than we used to. According to a recent study cited by the Washington Post, Americans are reading for pleasure 30% today less than they were in 2004. Wow. Another study that I saw cited showed that Americans are watching about three hours of TV a day compared to 0.26 hours a day of reading. So they're spending more than 10 times as much passively watching a television screen than actively being involved with a book. However one interprets the numbers, it's clear that there's an extraordinary shift towards 
consuming a visual medium for pleasure. But when average Americans stop reading for leisure, for pleasure, then I think we have an issue. And how do we address that? What is the issue? I mean, is it a threat to our democracy? I think that um, the ability to think critically, to process different arguments, to understand other people's positions and point of views, which arguably are on the wane, and in America that increasingly gets its news from social media, that um, is increasingly divided, increasingly has difficulty in seeing the other person's point of view. That's what reading's all about. Reading is seeing the world through someone else's eyes. I think of social media as a mirror. You look into it, and your tastes and interests are reflected back on you. Literature is a prism. You look into it, and you're engaged, as Virginia Woolf said, with the mind of someone else. Something else. When we were doing research for this show, we came across an article in The Guardian about you that was written three years ago. How Dante saved my life when I became a widower and a father on the same day. Yes. Could you share that with Sure. Um, in late 2007, my um, late wife, Catherine Mester, had a car accident, which was fatal, and she was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, 45 minutes before she died, she delivered our daughter, Isabel. But in the space of a couple hours, I was both a widower and a father, and it was, you know, an intense... Um, immersion in grief um, that took me years to get out of. My guide during all that, as I wrote about in a book called In a Dark Wood, what Dante taught me about grief healing and the mysteries of love, was how great literature like Dante's Divine Comedy can be a guide to us in our darkest moments. What did it do in your case that perhaps reading self-help books would not have done? Think of the first lines of the Divine Comedy, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura. In the middle of life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood. Dante's a Christian, but it's not just for Christian or religious people to read. Because what Dante's saying is that all of us, at one point in our lives, will end up in the dark wood. We will all have our crisis moment, and it's not what lands you in the dark wood that defines you, but what you do to get out of it. And for me, who had spent his life studying Dante, teaching literature like the Divine Comedy, I heard his voice for the first time during this moment of crisis, and it was his no-nonsense. He doesn't provide any easy answers, but he shows you how, through the example of his own life, Dante lost everything. He was exiled from Florence when he was 36, spent the last 20 years of his life wandering personal defeat of losing the home he loved but he wrote the divine comedy during that time and that's a record of him coming to terms with his great loss his beloved city are there universal truths about the human condition that can be learned through reading ancient literature you know the word universal is one that gets some people's back up. And I completely understand that. One person's universal may not be another person's. So I prefer the term enduring. And that's the definition of classical literature. Think of Augustine's Confessions. It was written in the late 300s, like 1,600 years ago. But it's really the template for the modern memoir. At its heart, it's an addiction 
narrative. Augustine is addicted to lust. He's addicted to work and earthly glories. And he has this crisis moment. He's far from God. And halfway through, he hears these magical words, pick it up and read, tole legge. And he picks up the closest book, the Bible, and he randomly reads a passage that changes his life, that allows him to make this break with the things that were holding him back. I think if you pick up most memoirs today, you'll see Augustinian patterns in them. What got me down? What made me struggle? How I got out of it? So that was written in a world completely different from ours. And if you read anything else from that period, most likely won't make much sense to you. The miracle is that a book like that continues to communicate to us today. What do you say to those who argue that too many of the examples that are cited about our literature are by dead white males? Well, Augustine was North African. Uh, so I think in that particular case, he, he wouldn't fit the traditional categories. I also completely understand and believe in the need for an expanded canon, literary canon, that we need to hear from a plurality of voices to be as inclusive as possible. But I think that happens. I think that happens naturally and organically because we only elevate to the category of great books, the books that make sense to us collectively as a society. So what we're reading today in a literature class where I teach at Bard would be very different from what they were reading 100 years ago. And that's right. That's the way it should be. So I trust in the capacity of readers to create those reading lists which matter to them now. Coming up, we're going to be looking at some ideas of how we can improve our reading time. I'm speaking with Joseph Lutzi, who is a writer and professor of comparative literature at Bard College. Uh, Jim is off today, sadly sick at his <laughs> manse north of New York City. <laughs> and we'll be back in just a moment. It's How Do We Fix It? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You say that writing is an act of generosity by the writer to the reader. And I, I think that's lovely. But our producer, Miranda, <laughs> thinks, no, wait a minute. It's a big egotistical act of expecting people to read what I'm yeah, saying. I, I, I register that. And with all due respect to Miranda, um, what I meant to say was um, it wasn't the, the, the writer per se who's necessarily a generous person 
or not. It's writing as an act of communication. And so think of the years that it can take a, a, a writer to produce a small novel. But what I think is really important in the context of this conversation is not writing as an act of generosity, but reading as an act of generosity. Because without the attention and energy of the reader, um, the words on the page mean nothing. Are there examples of where, as a result of a book or a series of, of, of novels, you changed your mind, you changed your mm. perspective? I will say, when I read Elena Ferrante, for example, I, was a, I am a, a scholar of Italian literature and Italian culture. So I'd spent a lot of my life researching that. And I was also from a Southern Italian family. So very connected to that world of, that they're writing about. I guess I never really understood the depth to which being a woman in that world was until I read the Ferrante novels. I knew what the statistics were. I knew what the challenges were. I'd studied the problems of being a woman in a patriarchal society. But when you get inside the characters' heads, when you see what they have gone through, then it's really so visceral and it brings it to life in a way that no statistic ever had. So that didn't change my thinking as such because I knew that women faced challenges, but the degree to which these novels were able to put on the table the struggle for a woman to find love, the struggle for a woman to build a career, and the struggle for a woman to establish a kind of um, idea of herself in this male-dominated world was astonishing. What are some ways that we can improve our reading time? This is the self-help part of, of the show. Well, you know, <laughs> I guess um, I'm glad you asked because I really do see this as something that my goal when I teach literature and write about it is I hope to say something interesting about books that gets them, you know, um, thinking. But ultimately what I want someone to do is to go read the book. And more than that, I want them to make reading a part of their lives because I think that the gifts are, I always think of it as the greatest gift you can give someone because it's a lifelong gift that they can cultivate every day that will change them. Do you think people should read books every day? Well, I have what I call the rule of fours to make it easier to read. I think that if you read um, for 45 minutes a day, four days a week, almost like an exercise commitment. It's totally manageable. 45 minutes a day, four days a week, commit to it. And then read four books. One, a fun book, mystery, genre, whatever, uh, romance, you name it, your fun go-to book. The second book should be a classic. By that, I mean a book you've always wanted to read. You know, it doesn't have to be fiction, could be Plato could be, you know, uh, Toni Morrison could be um, Herodotus. You, you pick a, just a demanding book that you've heard is, is something worth reading. And then something contemporary, fiction and nonfiction. That's a nice, well-balanced reader's diet. Fun, classic, contemporary fiction, contemporary nonfiction. Contemporary is important because that's what's going on in the world today. And if you work through that plan. So you have your 45 minutes a day, four days a week, your four books, and then the two other things in our rule of four. The third thing is disconnect. By that I mean you can read on your Kindle. 
Even if you read an audiobook, that's, listen to an audiobook, that's fine. It's all part of the ecology of reading. But you cannot be multitasking. Reading is one thing you cannot do in multitask. So you have to be disconnected. And the last thing is put it in writing. Have a pen or a pencil and a notebook. Take notes in the book. I always tell my students, if you can afford to keep your books, keep them. They're a record of your education and make notes in them. That's how you engage with what you're reading. Create a plan. What are your next four books going to be? If you do those four things, look, research has shown there's a wealth of benefits to reading. They shows you sleep better, reduce stress levels. There's all these practical things. I'm not here to sell that. I'm here to sell what I believe is the intrinsic pleasure, joy, and, um, you know, edification that you get from giving books a chance. That's it, all I'm it's, saying. It sounds a bit like the, the literature equivalent of the four agreements. Oh, I, what are those? I don't know those. <laughs> I need to read that book. That, that's the Don Miguel Ruiz book about okay. how um, uh, I think one of them is uh, don't take it personally. Okay. Uh, be impeccable with your word. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. Well, and then years later, he added another one, which okay. I love as a journalist, which is be skeptical. <laughs> I think all of those could sort of connect to reading in some way. What I, what I wanted to do with my list is to show that it's not this austere, demanding, pedantic thing. It, it really is the complete opposite of that. Do a little experiment. Um, compare the face of someone who's surfed the web for an hour to someone who's read a good book for an hour. We started this podcast with the observation that Donald Trump doesn't read. If our leaders read more, not just Trump, but others, yeah. what would it do, do you think? You know, uh, I've had the great uh, fortune of speaking often the last uh, year or so for One Day University on presidents and the books they do read. And I started that um, research with this open question have books shaped the history of the Oval Office? I have been astonished to find how much our greatest presidents read books and how influential books were in some of the most consequential decisions in U.S. history. George Washington was obsessed with this 18th century British play by Joseph Addison about liberty and sacrificing for one's country, Joseph Addison's play Cato. Um, Thomas Jefferson read voraciously. His books form the collection for the Library of Congress and the University of Virginia Library. And the Declaration of Independence is steeped in Jefferson's knowledge of 18th century political philosophers like Locke and Rousseau, among many others. Abraham Lincoln read Shakespeare intensely, and, you know, had a profound knowledge of Shakespeare and the moral decisions that Lincoln made during the Civil War, the, his decision to free the slaves, they were to a great sense shaped by his understanding of tragedy in Shakespeare. Lincoln was someone who, to his grave, carried the sense of all the blood that was shed in the name of the ideals he believed in. He believed they were ideals worth dying for, but that didn't change his sense of the tragedy at the heart of all the loss of American life, the sense of tragedy that he got 
uh, in large part from reading works like Macbeth and um, Hamlet. So John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, so many of our great presidents were great bookworms. Professor Joseph Lutze talking about the benefits of books and especially fiction. His online book group can be found at josephlutze.com. Lutze is spelled L-U-Z-Z-I. No new recommendation this week, but we have plenty of them during my conversation with Jim. Next. Okay, Jim, we've heard from Joe Lutze and some of the books that really changed him and had a big impact on his life. What about you? What books have changed you? Book number one, my lovely great aunt gave me a book called Annapurna by the French mountaineer Maurice Herzog when I was probably about 12. One of the all-time great narratives of an epic climb of one of the tallest peaks in the, in the Himalayas for the first time. Even though everybody practically died and got their feet frozen off, it made me want to become a climber. <laughs> a glutton um, for punishment. It just was the great drama of all of that. And then uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I also read as a young person a fantastic work of reportage about the damage that pesticides were doing, especially to bird populations. And that got me really interested in the environmental movement. Today we look back and their book's a little, she goes a little overboard on certain arguments, but the book changed the world. And I see eagles fly by my house usually once or twice a week. They wouldn't be here if we hadn't banned DDT back in the, in the 60s, thanks to Yeah, her. in front of my house I see egrets and, and they were also nearly extinct. Yeah. In college, I read, I'm not going to pick one book, but I read a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche, the very justifiably controversial philosopher, but it got me deeply inspired into the power of ideas and, and, and pure thought. And then finally, uh, a book by Charles C. Mann, who's a fairly recent guest on How Do We Fix It for his most recent book. He wrote a book called 1491 about what North and South America were like just before the first contact with Europeans. And it's it's one of those books that completely changes your paradigms about how you look at a certain situation. In this case, a lot of our images of Native Americans as being these very kind of primitive hunter-gatherers. It turns out it's quite wrong. They were far more advanced, far more agricultural than we tend to think. So here's what here's my takeaway from well, this episode. Well, First, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. Sorry. Ask me what my books are. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you got to talk the whole show. Uh, so, Richard, what are your books? Okay, I'll keep mine, mine shorter. For me, the books that have changed me are books mostly by people who are not like me, and I find they're usually novels. One recent example is Americana by the Nigerian-American writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I probably have mangled that pronunciation, but uh, her book is about the migrant experience, and I've been reading a bunch of different novels about migrants that I've found really fascinating. Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and then the wonderful West with the Night, which was my first audiobook. And I remember loving it so much, I didn't care if I was in a traffic jam. It's by Beryl Markham, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic from Europe to 
uh, to North America. Yeah, that's you no. Know, it's a wonderful book, and I completely share his concern about the fall off in reading among among younger people. So I think that his suggestions. I mean, it seems pretty easy. I probably do that, but it's wonderful to have it kind of laid out as a as a plan. You know, imagine how rich your experience in your life will be if you started that as a young person and, and, and do that throughout your life. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Please check us out at our website, uh, DaviesContent.com. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And thanks very much for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 